Welcome to War Machine, a podcast for theological nomads. This episode continues our exploration of Clayton Crockett's 2022 publication, Energy and Change, a New Materialist Cosmotheology. Specifically, Matt Baker and Matt Valor discuss Chapter 2, Vital Matters, Bioenergetics and Change. We're at warmachinepodcast.com. Enjoy. I've read this chapter more than once and I feel like I understand the concepts and I can talk about them. Uh, I think I have some things to say about the organisation of the concepts and I think it's a challenging chapter. But, um, yeah, I feel ready to go. Yeah. Well, I think the point you were just making about the organisation potentially being a challenge I think is right because as much as the story that he's telling is linear, it keeps kind of shifting back and forth in a way that, at least for me, makes it a little bit more difficult to track what the main thrust of the argument is, if that makes sense. Yeah, Yeah, it does make sense. I'm kind of taking in the big picture, I think, and um, maybe we should try to say what this chapter is at a high level trying to accomplish and then we can kind of backtrack into some of the details and specific subchapters and so on. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. I was going to suggest the same for exactly that reason. I, I think when you when you get to the end of the chapter, you can start to feel like, oh, okay, I see now how you might be trying to tie some of these things together. And it was difficult to see that along the way. Uh, so I think yeah, I think working back is a good strategy. So My take from the previous chapter was that energy should be thought in terms of gradient reduction. That's what's driving change. And what was established was that form and structure can be maintained by gradient reduction where two different gradients might work against each other uh, to actually create something that is the most efficient entropic movement of thermodynamic processes. But rather than in an open system where there's an energy source and an energy sink, that the most efficient form of gradient reduction might temporarily actually maintain form. And we talked about uh, Deleuze and intensity and the way of thinking identity and difference there wasn't just about sameness and representation but there was it was about differentiators that allowed for series the patterns of diffraction that result from series being brought near to each other to be a basis for thinking difference there's quite a complex introduction to the topic i think in this chapter when we move forward to talk about life which is primarily what this chapter is about. What Crockett is trying to do overall is to make the case that life should and can be thought primarily in terms of that same process of gradient reduction. The the most efficient way to create equilibrium 
can, in certain circumstances within open systems, create and maintain form. And life is really the deferral of the dissolution of form temporarily. And it's in that temporary gap that life can exist. And that's the kind of argument that uh, Terence Deacon has advanced. And so Crockett's engaging with Deacon right near the end of this chapter. But I think what makes this chapter particularly interesting is not just bringing in somebody like Deacon, but it's the way that he uses that to engage Catherine Malibu. And so he wants to relate Malibu's idea of plasticity, which, you know, we should talk more about, uh, but also then the idea of uh, epigenesis as a way of thinking epigenetics in relation to the transcendental. And the complex argument, I think it's complex, and I think you and I agree from what we've said, this chapter might have benefited from uh, some better editorial um, in terms of its organisation. But I still want to overall say I think it's an incredible chapter, personally. Uh, The specifics of how we think of genetic inheritance in relation to kind of neo-Darwinian biological thought uh, it is brought into question in relation to research around bacteria because neo-Darwinian thought tends to focus more on eukaryotic organisms, in other words, organisms with a nucleus and membrane-bound organelles that are more likely to replicate sexually. Uh, and so sexual reproduction leads to a more classical view of natural selection. But if you get into thinking about bacteria, which swap their DNA kind of much more freely, but reproduce asexually through a kind of cloning, uh, you're into the question of identity and difference. And it's the blurring of the boundaries of identity and difference. I think that then is what's leading Crockett to want to really emphasize this point about the transcendental, yeah. uh, which is Malibu in relation to Kant, and then to bring that in relation to somebody like Deacon, who is demonstrating how inorganic processes can give rise to organic life, enables Crockett in a new materialist cosmotheology to make a clearer account for how the boundary between life and what we might call Mm non-life is much harder to maintain than is often maintained in the natural sciences. To me, that's the big sort of philosophical slash scientific contribution of the chapter. And in the end, he wants to push it back again to okay, but what's the politics of it? I mean, that's just in like the final paragraph, and we'll talk about that in the next chapter. But the point of it all is to what extent the constraints operate, because really in the end, this is all about the manufacture and maintenance of constraints and how we live with that. I think that's right. And I think that point about constraints and how that connects up with Malibu's Readaptation of uh, or reconceptualization of Kant's transcendental 
I think is absolutely central to what's happening here. In fact, I have a whole section here highlighted and I wrote uh, key underlined under here. And but I think we'll we'll get there because I, I think that's a uh, an important but as you indicated, a difficult concept to grasp. So I think maybe that's something we want to reconstruct. But backing up a little bit, yes, in terms of the the continuity between the previous chapter, which had to do with gradient reduction, at the top of 85, I think this one line kind of sums that up nicely, the continuity between the two chapters here. Life is not an exception to the laws of thermodynamics but a singular instance of an open non-equilibrium system that makes use of thermal and other gradients. Life constitutes change, which should be understood in terms of Malibu's biological materialism. Yeah, I think I think there's two ways into this because okay. there's a lot of biology that it, it might be useful to outline. At the same time, I felt like there was a lot of biological information that sometimes I was unclear how much it was really contributing to the main line of argument rather right, than... Right, right. Like, I had that thought too a couple of times, like, why am I reading this? <laughs> yeah. So there's this whole like fascinating thing about how how we ended up with eukaryotes from prokaryotes. So, so prokaryotes being single-cell organisms with no nucleus uh, and, and no other membrane-bound organelles, so no mitochondria, crucially, which is the kind of engine of a eukaryotic cell where respiration happens, which is where energy is constantly produced and then discharged. So I suppose in a book about energy, perhaps that's the key reason why you'd want to talk about that. And and it's fascinating, you know, if there's a question, is there another group of prokaryotic organisms called archaea and did at one time an archaea swallow a bacteria and... uh, they kind of developed this symbiotic relationship whereby the bacterium became the mitochondria. Which I sort of read as a tentative account of an origin of sexual differentiation, but it, I don't know that he made that case really strongly. I just kind of, maybe I just read into that too much, but. Okay, so say more about that, because I, I, don't, I don't think I get that. Uh, he writes here, the point is not whether the specific explanation is correct. It's the fact that the generation of a eukaryotic cell was an extraordinary accomplishment and perhaps as extraordinary and unlikely as the creation of life itself. The endosymbiotic merger of two different kinds of prokaryote is what made this possible in morphological energetic terms. Um, so you have this primordial act of penetration, but it's more of a swallowing. It's maybe both things at the same time, right? So there's a sort of division of labor that happens when one is absorbed by another it's interesting about the idea that two things come together and create a new possibility. I mean, that's what I heard you say, and I hadn't thought about that. And I, I could see why you went there in terms of thinking about sort of it, it, in generative terms. You th- I mean, it is quite clear. It's just uh, We should say, actually, most of what's said in this chapter is on the sort of cutting edge of speculative biological thinking, where yes. there's quite yes. a strong sense that probably this is... Uh, going to be proven to be true. And that was Malibu's point, you know, with epi, uh, the, the epigenetic research is still waiting for experimentation to catch up with theory. And so her book Before Tomorrow is kind of like, well, while we're waiting, before tomorrow, when it's finally proved, we need to think philosophically today. 
And I think that's sort of in the spirit of much of this, isn't it? It's like that there's quite a few caveats that not all biologists agree with this, or this is still contested, or this is still waiting empirical verification and, and so on. But I think that the idea of the capacity for symbiosis, which is what that kind of origin story of the eukaryote is, is part of, I suppose, the, the two reasons I could see for including it, even though I think the location of it is perhaps a bit confusing, is one is it is an account of how organisms have generated greater energy and therefore the ability for greater and longer term stability. In other words, in Crockett's own type of language, you know, they defer entropy for long, no, they, they maximize entropy to defer the dissolution of form for longer. But the other is to do with the fact that this ability to create symbiotic relationships between single cell organisms problematizes the idea of identity. And as soon as you get a eukaryotic cell and you, you've got this whole kind of it's the eukaryotic cell that makes multicellularity possible. So you don't get a multicellular organism until you've got a, a cell with membrane-bound organelles. And so as soon as you do that, you start creating new problems of identity because a multicellular organism then is named. But what is it? Who is it? Uh, is it the total yeah it's already a multiplicity right and he'll make the same case for what it means to be human that were these sort of yeah. sprawling ecosystems and that what we think of as the self in terms of you know attributing some kind of singularity to the self is misguided in a number of ways and one of the things that he talks about i know we're completely jumping around now so there's often an identification of the thinking self with the brain, and he sort of troubles that by explaining how how the brain actually extends into the gut uh, and how the brain cannot really be thought apart from the entirety of our neural pathways, right? We think with our entire bodies. Not only that, we're made up of a multitude of bacteria and other kinds of organisms without which we wouldn't be able to arrive at something like an identity. And there was something else, too, about the... Well, I want to find this one because I thought this was really good. Great. It's what makes us think. Bacteria, fungi, worms, cephalopods, primates, patterns, a web, a tree, an enemy, a lover, a book, a film, a cloud. And I think that's a very Deleuzean way of thinking about what thought is. It's something that kind of comes from the outside, it's something that actually creates a rupture or break in the continuity of what we think as thought, but in actuality is more like repetition without difference. And I think this is a big part of the argument being made in this chapter, not just having to do with thought, but with, with thinking through change for life in terms of genetics and epigenetics. We need to understand how epigenetics is a kind of, um, well, we do, first of all, we don't understand the mechanics of how it works. There's that. But the idea is that with natural selection, which uh, presumably proceeds by way of genetic mutation, slow genetic mutation over time, different traits are quote unquote selected for. With epigenetics, 
change can occur very rapidly. And if you understand that just within the biological register, that gets you so far in, in understanding the argument here. But then he ties that idea of disruption and punctuated equilibrium up with Malibu's reading of Kant and the transcendental. I think there's two main things going on. The biological slash material story that is a continuation of thermodynamics and the production of life. But then there's also this, I was going to say philosophical overlay, but it's really because we're working within a new materialist paradigm, this philosophical thread that is continuous throughout that material story. And the point of that is really this story about how if we understand, I'm not sure this is the language he uses, but if we understand the continuous unfolding of being as an epigenetic process, then we're better equipped to understand how on page 111, how epigenetics indicates the opening of a hermeneutic dimension in the heart of the biological. Okay, and then just a little bit further down. According to Malibu, Kant cannot resolve the contradictions of his usage of the term epigenesis in the critique of pure reason, so she turns to the critique of judgment in the third critique, Kant draws an analogy between the purposiveness of nature and the design of an artist. We tend to view this analogy simplistically as the attribution to design in nature in a teleological way that Darwin later destroyed. But Malibu suggests a much more complex reading. She argues that what animates the critique of judgment and implicitly the critique of pure reason is the idea of life. Life is the outside that transforms the entire system of critique, the epigenesis of reason. That is, the transcendental evolves in time as it interacts with the living. Malibu says that, quote, the resolution of this heterogeneity between the transcendental and life is exactly that which, along with the categories and the objective reference, is also subject to epigenesis. There is an epigenetic structure to our categories of thinking that evolve in their encounter with life, which leads to new expressions and manifestations of existence. So, yeah, the case there isn't having to do so much with being, but I guess the point here is to draw, again, a continuity between life and, in some sense, language, I suppose, that language is not supplemental but that it's entirely continuous with life. And that's a materialist rendering of thought and language. I think that this relates to what is the, the really key contribution of the chapter for me, which is that the idea of, the idea of life as a constraint. Mm -hmm. So as I read what Crockett's arguing, the use of Malibu to, in this specific reading of Kant is to say... So first of all, we should, I mean, we should maybe just talk a little bit about Malibu, because I mean, Malibu is incredible, I think, and I'm not, I haven't read huge amounts of her work, but what I understand, Malibu wants to write about plasticity, and she goes to Hegel and finds all the times that Hegel talks about plasticity and reimagines Hegel by writing about plasticity. She, she wants to write about epigenetics, so she goes to Kant and finds where he talks about epigenesis and reimagines epigenetics in terms of Kant's epigenesis. I mean, it's incredible, and I understand why 
uh, Crockett is excited about her work. She's very um, delusional in that sense. He would do that to a lot of his early work was engaging with thinkers and kind of reading them against themselves. Right. And it's interesting because I get the sense that uh, Crockett feels like Malibu is, is not as engaged with Deleuze as he would expect her to be. She's more in the tradition of Hegel, Heidegger, and then through to Derrida, who was cultural supervisor. Um, so I find that all really fascinating. The idea about epigenesis from a biological point of view is, and, and this is developed in some detail by Crockett, is the idea that we know about genes. Genes are a series of, of coded amino acids in the core of DNA um, that code for protein synthesis. But epigenesis is the idea that other types of external environmental factors might shape genetic inheritance. And the bit that is developed from the biological point of view here is that in DNA research, the more complex an organism becomes, there's not like loads more DNA that can code for loads more different types of proteins. Right. Uh, the more complex an organism becomes, the more it just has a load of extra junk DNA, which scientists are still not really completely sure what it's there for. But one of the big contenders of what it's there for, and emerging evidence is showing this, is that actually the question isn't, have you got the code to code for a protein? The question is, have you got sophistication, which could be what the junk DNA is for, for turning on and off protein synthesis at certain moments? Right. Uh, and, and I think this is where, um, and I definitely am not an expert in this, but my understanding is, you know, when you've got certain genes that, you know, say code for eye color, for example, um, there are certain genes that are discontinuous. So you either have blue eyes or you have brown eyes. Uh, but the reason that some people have types of brown eyes and some people have types of blue eyes is because then there are other phenotypes, as in the physical presentation of a genotype, which are not just controlled by discontinuous genes. I did this one, you know, is this one dominant? Is that one recessive? Um, but actually a whole combination of genetic features that come together. And so if you can control when genes are switched on and when they're switched off with a greater level of complexity, then you can actually create much more complex organisms. So there's a biological case that epigenesis, it's not just sort of external environmental factors, as it's sometimes thought of, it actually might be right within the heart of DNA itself. When Malibu's thinking epigenetics, she's going to Kant because Kant is wanting to determine the conditions with which something can be known. Uh, and this is why he creates the idea of the transcendental. And those that have critiqued that transcendentalism are saying it limits what can be known. It, sorry, it limits what is to what can be known by the human. So mm -hmm. um, Quentin Meyersu, for example, Crockett references as a critique of Kant, and Malibu takes on Meyersu because what she's saying is epigenesis is a way of thinking prior to thought, which, which is what Kant is arguing. But that creates a paradox because you can't, in, in a biological system, for example, you can't imagine that you would have epigenesis unless you already had some genes. 
but you can't switch off and on genetic code if you don't already have a genetic code. But if epigenesis was, in fact, the condition of constraint, <clears throat> then you could see epigenesis as an a priori condition. You could think of it in terms of the conditions that create or that motivate and, and continue change. Mm -hmm. And I think that the major argument that Crockett's making in this chapter is that actually that can be thought in terms of energy, even right down to thermodynamic principles of gradient reduction. And that's the major innovation of the chapter, as I, as I see it. Because then when he goes on to talk about Deacon, this is the problem with the organization of the chapter, I think, again, but Deacon's argument is there are orthograde thermodynamic processes which in a closed system will tend towards equilibrium, and that's what we call entropy. But there are certain conditions where in an open system, where you have an energy source and an energy sink, you can have two orthograde thermodynamic processes which can work against each other, which create this morphodynamic system. And that's the kind of thing that Clayton's been talking about in the previous chapter that we'd already talked about, when gradient reduction in two directions can actually temporarily create form. What Deacon then does is to go on and explain how that morphodynamic system could create a teleodynamic system where it becomes end-directed. So he has the idea of the autogen, which would be like a catalyst, because a catalyst isn't used up in a reaction. So a catalyst facilitates a reaction that then creates a, a kind of shell that protects the reaction from carrying on. And so and, and, and the byproducts of the reaction create more of the new products for a new reaction. And so you can have this kind of ongoing process that actually is directed to the end of reproduction, continuation, and therefore life. What I think Crockett's doing with Deacon's argument that I think it's really interesting because Crockett wants to emphasize the way in which Deacon uses this to almost describe a ratchet effect. So mm -hmm. these um, processes might go in a certain direction where it's easier to force them in one direction than another. So with a ratchet, you know, you, you crank it up and then it's, if you want to turn it the other way, you can't get it anywhere. But if you can keep turning it the way you were turning it before, you can take it another level. You've got these kind of different levels of emergence of complexity. Right. Uh, that happen from this process, all of which are fundamentally driven by thermodynamic gradient reduction. And the idea of then taking Malibu's argument about epigenesis as a way of thinking the transcendental as a constraint yeah. is what allows us to marry that with Deacon's insight which is a really interesting insight, which is that none of what he's arguing is possible without what he calls an absential cause. So in other words, without an absence that provides a constraint, without an edge to which there is a not rather yeah. than an is, yeah, without something that provides a constraint, you can't have any of these processes occurring. You can't have morphodynamics that can't turn into teleodynamics. You can't have something you describe as life. And so life is, in that sense, less than the sum of its parts in the sense that it becomes the constraint that makes form and being possible, even if only for a time. And 
those constraints have to be thought in terms of energy gradient and, uh, and gradient reduction. So he's made the case that energy is gradient reduction, and now he's making the case that gradient reduction is actually what allows constraints to operate, and constraints are what are in fact life, which is a fascinating argument to me because we never talk about life as being about constraints. We talk about life as exuberance and fecundity and breaking out of constraints. And he does want to talk about it in those terms as well, but he's saying it's constraints that make all of that possible without constraints, without the transcendental as a constraint, right. uh, you have no life. I think that was a really good explanation of the major arguments being made here. I think just to add to that, or to complicate that just a little bit more, the transcendental itself is subject to change. You're right. That was crucial to the. That's absolutely key to the argument. Yeah. Yeah. So even the constraints themselves are, are not fixed, and it's actually the the change in constraints that apply pressure in different ways to the systems of repetition that allows for, in a certain sense, punctuated equilibrium. These limits create the very conditions for dramatic change. And I can't help but think that we might apply this idea to what's in the background of this book, which is the ecological scene and the capitalist scene, where we are in many ways approaching real limits. This kind of goes back to something he wrote in the in the introduction with the thesis that, you know, maybe our nature is change. Well, if that is the case and we are approaching these real limits, then we're also approaching the possibility of sudden and dramatic change. And that argument is not just one that is wishful thinking. There's a, a very robust materialist argument for why that might be the case. There's an argument here for an accelerationist point of view, but I think that's wrong. He pretty much disabuses of that earlier in, in the book. I agree. One thing I did want to say, though, about about this chapter just before we end was um, I think one of the really interesting places that it's landing, this chapter lands, is with this idea about change and is it determinist or not? And that um, you talked about, you know, it could be an argument for accelerationism, uh, but it isn't, I agree. Genetic evolution, we know, happens at, at one kind of temporality that, from our perspective, is pretty slow. Uh, but if you think about epigenetic change, even if we don't think cultural is entirely separate from natural, but if we're going to talk about the cultural or, or, or the level of language or symbol, or then it can happen very fast. And that's important in thinking about our societal development and how right. we respond to changes that are going on right now. But the key thing is that Malibu is like the Yes, we can say that um, things can change, but also we need to push back against the capitalist demand to just be uber flexible in this kind of neoliberal economy that just wants you to be able to bend over backwards to do whatever uh, yeah. the, the system wants. And so we've got that on the one hand. And then on the other hand, with the end of the chapter, we have Crockett saying, uh, you know, the idea of the transcendental was a big constraint. Um, doesn't mean that we can't change anything. And I think that that interplay between you know, Malibu's call to be resistive and say, actually, no, I don't want to be completely flexible. I right. do actually want to have some stability because the demand for change is actually a problem. Uh, and then the opposite of that, which is the hyper-constraining 
um, transcendental life, uh, which needs some sense of what can change and what can't. Yeah. And there was a brilliant line, I think, right at the end of the chapter, if I can find it. Um, it was just a good play on words about change giving us a chance to change. Yeah, um, yeah. Yes, change is the key. And you made absolutely correctly made the point that the transcendental in this view is constantly changing in response. It's not a fixed constraint. So there's this constant change that is the most fundamental reality. So then the question of agency feels like it's really at the heart of this. Like, what can we change and what can't we change? And what energy will it require to change it? Uh, or what energy will it require to resist being forced to change? Yeah, I think back to when we were speaking with um, Andrew McLuhan. He was invoking that image of the maelstrom. The maelstrom is a metaphor for the torrent of change that capitalism forces upon us and the entire environment. And I think he was saying something along the lines of within that current, it produces countervailing forces. So even within that kind of change that maybe we don't want, there are different kinds of flows that we can tap into and capture. And that can be revolutionary, no pun intended. On the bottom of 128, he writes, just as change comes before difference, change never stops. It is without beginning or end. That makes my theological ears tickle. A metabolic ontology that just might be the basis of a new and different liberationist thinking. I think it really connects up with Malibu's idea of plasticity, which I think is important to keep in mind throughout this entire chapter, if not the entire book, as giving form, receiving form. I think especially important for this chapter has been the idea of explosive potential. Um, and I sort of think that along the lines of the kind of rapid change that can take place as a result of uh, epigenetic epigenetics. Hey, buddy, how you doing? Can you not? <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> stop, stop. Full on attack. I, I don't know, man. I don't, something, something. What are you doing? Stop, 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 stop. Just a freak. All right, man. By the way, um, we've got 60 seconds on the... All right, well, let's just... Um, Let's just uh, call it a day then. <laughs> yeah, I liked what you were saying there, though, Matt. I, I really enjoyed that. And I think um, I think that you, the maelstrom and also linking that to the idea of like political potential and, and but uh, like a personal as well as a broad political, I, I think there's a lot of power there. Yeah. All right, man. Good to see you. Um, I'll see, yeah, you, you, uh, too. see you again soon. All right. Take care, man. All right. Bye. Bye.